And I appreciate John teaching Sunday, uh, past Sunday. Ryan, you teaching next Sunday? Wednesday. Next Wednesday, and you're preaching, teaching Sunday. Sunday. Sunday, okay. Okay. Uh, and I think you got through all the way through Numbers 22. Let's start with the last verse of 22 because it may connect better with this first oracle. And we'll just start with 22.41. It came about in the morning that Balak took Balaam and brought him up to the high places of Baal. And he saw the people from there, a portion of the people. Then Balaam said to Balak, Build seven altars for me here and prepare seven bulls and seven rams for me here. Balak did just as Balaam had spoken. And Balak and Balaam offered up a bull and ram on each altar. Then Balaam said to Balak, Stand beside your burnt offering. (coughs) I apologize. Stand beside your burnt offering and I will go. Perhaps the Lord will come to meet me, and whatever he shows me, I will tell you. So he went to a bare hill. God met Balaam, and he said to him, I have set up seven altars, and I have offered a bull and ram on each altar. Then the Lord put a word in Balaam's mouth and said, Return to Balak, and you shall speak thus. So he returned to him, and behold, he was standing beside the burnt offering, he and all the leaders of Moab. And he took up his discourse and said, From Aram, Balak has brought me, Moab's king from the mountain of the east. Come curse Jacob for me, and come denounce Israel. How can I curse whom God has not cursed? How can I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced. And I see him from the top of the rocks. I look at him from the hills. Behold a people who dwells apart and shall not be reckoned among the nations. Who can count the dust of Jacob or number the fourth part of Israel? Let me die the death of the upright and let my end be like his. Then Balak said to Balaam, Why have you done this? What have you done to me? I took you to curse my enemies, but behold, you have actually blessed them. He answered and said, Must I not be careful to speak what the Lord puts in my mouth? Okay. So, Balaam said to Balak, Build seven altars and prepare seven bulls and seven rams. Now, seven bulls and seven rams is quite a significant sacrifice. Can you think there's only one occasion in the Bible where we see people called to offer that kind of sacrifice at one time that I remember? Job's friends brought... Uh, a burnt offering and a peace offering of a bull and a ram, seven bulls and seven rams in Job 48, Job 42, verse 8. Now, in that case, Job was a wealthy man. I suppose his friends were probably extremely wealthy men. That was a sacrifice 
of people who had much. Here, the king, who no doubt has much, uh, does the same thing. Seven bulls and seven rams. What makes this different, uh, one writer said, this is the only case in the Old Testament where you see one series of sacrifices being offered on different altars. Seven altars, seven bulls, seven rams. But all of this was to invoke the attention of their deity. What is their concept of God? Balaam is sometimes going to use the word Lord in all capitals speaking of Yahweh. And yet the text says in verse 41 of 22, they were going to the high places of Baal. What are their concepts? It's just really difficult to tell. But Balak is to stand beside the burnt offering. And Balaam goes to a bare hill, hoping the Lord will speak to him. And he will relay the message that God has sent. Some of these features are going to be followed in each of these oracles, or at least the first three, I should say, of these oracles. Seven altars, seven bulls, seven rams, and Balak stands by the offering. Balaam waits for a word from God. And the Bible tells us in verse 4 that God met Balaam. God met Balaam. The true God has revealed himself to Balaam. And it says, I set up seven altars. I offered a bull and ram on each. And the Lord put a word in Balaam's mouth. Now that's the Lord Yahweh in all capitals. So he's behind these words that Balaam speaks. By the way, I don't know if you got the email yet. I tried to include everybody, but I always forget somebody. Don't feel badly if you get forget forgotten. There's one time the one I forgot was was Christy. So so don't don't feel badly. It doesn't mean I don't care about you, don't like you. But what you will see if you read that article is that archaeology establishes the existence of a Balaam son of Beor, who was known to prophesy things outside of the biblical text. It was discovered around 1967, just east of the Jordan River. Now, that's pretty remarkable that the Bible gets this little detail about Balaam, son of Beor, correct. And it just maybe. We're meant to trust this book historically. Maybe it has accurate information. Because I never would have expected a character like this to be confirmed outside of Scripture. But the Lord puts a word in His mouth and He comes back and speaks this word in verse 6 to Balak when all the leaders of Moab are looking on. Now, the words blessing and cursing, as we stated, are so prominent throughout this section. I think John emphasized that Sunday. These words so important in this particular section. And in this 
prophetic statement he makes in verses 7 through 10. It says uh, that he was asked by Balak, come curse Jacob and come denounce Israel. That's the whole purpose of him coming. Because whoever he curses is cursed. And whoever he blesses is blessed. So he is called to come curse Israel, to denounce Israel. But the word the Lord put in his mouth was, in verse 8, how can I curse whom God has not cursed? How can I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? He can't pronounce a curse or or denounce this people uh, because that is not God's will. And he says, I see them from the top of the rocks. It says, who can count the dust of Jacob or number the fourth part of Israel? Now, I don't know if all of this is intended. It may well be. But when I read verse 10, I think of those promises that God makes that the descendants of Abraham would be like the dust of the earth in Genesis chapter 18, uh, Genesis 13, excuse me, verse 16, and Genesis 28 uh, and verse 14. The descendants of Abraham, the descendants of Jacob would be like the dust of of the earth. And he emphasizes it. He emphasizes not only that they will be blessed, but they will be a prosperous people. Who can count the dust of Jacob or number the fourth part of Israel? The way I would sum this up, the first oracle, and you can sum it up in your own words. Uh, maybe it does you good to think through it and to write it down somewhere else. But um, who can curse whom God has not cursed? And that sums up one of the key points of this oracle. Who can curse whom God has cur- not cursed? Well, Balak doesn't like this message. He doesn't like this message. And in verse 11, What have you done to me? I took you to curse my enemies, but behold, you've actually blessed them. And he answered and said, Must I not be careful to speak what the Lord puts in my mouth? Now, maybe you all talked about this the other day. Are we supposed to have a negative or positive impression of Balaam. Must I not speak what the Lord tells me to speak? I can only say what the Lord tells me to say. In itself, that is a positive statement, isn't it? It may be that he's also using this as an excuse. Listen, I called you to curse these people and you bless them. I said I can only speak what the Lord gives me to speak. We'll, we'll talk about that maybe. I hope we'll get to it some tonight. Any questions or comments on that oracle? Josh, so your hand first. And then Karen, we're... Okay. So in verse 10 where it talks about the fourth part of Israel, what is that talking about? <clears throat> I think it's talking about that he is brought to a place in verse 20, uh, 2241 where he saw a portion of... 
of the people. So he only sees a small part of them. And um, I, I think he's alluding perhaps to that in that reference. But even then, it's going to be so large, such a great amount, that it's going to be like the dust. That's what I take the reference to be to. Karen? Well, my question was similar. Um, my Bible says it can also be translated dust clouds. I didn't, I don't um, yes. I know how that relates just the same way. Yes. Um, <coughs> Maybe as they move, there are so many of them. The I mean, dust cloud is so large. Yeah. 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 yeah, that's right. And they would have created definitely uh, a dust a dust cloud, uh, a dust storm uh, by their presence. So so maybe that is part of the idea. Uh, I do think, in, and I'm, I was just thinking as you asked that, Karen, I don't know if I checked if the word dust is absolutely the same word of these passages, but uh, I don't know that I did check that. Um, but maybe John can check that out now on his phone and let us know. Um, BibleHub.com is a great source, I'll tell you. Any other questions? Okay, let's start with the second oracle. Now, I said we don't know exactly what these people believe. We're going to get a little idea of their understanding through these series of oracles, okay? Like in verse 13, Balak said to him, please come with me to another place from where you may see them, although you will only see the extreme end of them and will not see all of them and curse them for me from there. I can't curse them right here, but maybe you can curse them over there. You know, God, how can I curse whom God is not cursed? How can I denounce whom God is not denounced? But but maybe if you see them in a different place, you're going to render a different verdict. Often these people felt that the gods were subject to man's manipulation. If man can create the right circumstances... They can get the gods to do for them what they want them to do. The understanding of our God as loving kindness, uh, forgiving iniquity and sin, would have been unique in the ancient world. And it would have been uh, led Israel to much different concepts. But anyway, in verse 14, he took him to the field of Zophim on top of Pishkah and built seven altars and offered a bull and ram on each altar. Now you remember that language from 23.1. And you see it here again in 23.14. In verse 15, he said to Balak, Balak, stand here beside your burnt offering while I myself meet the Lord over there. And that sounds like verse 3, doesn't it? 23 verse 3. It's repeated here in 23.15. Now, I'm doubting this is so specific. We don't know exactly where some of these places are. Uh, though I know I notice that we have added our own places uh, to the map. 
I didn't know if we added Pisgah uh, to the map. But when you think of Pisgah, what do you think of? The song. You yeah. think of the song, okay? Uh, the, but the, the song is based on that. But if it's true, what song is that? Sweet, Sweet Hour of Prayer. Sweet Hour of Prayer. Till from Mount Pisgah's lofty heights, I view my home and take my flight. I want to tell you, you look at some of those old songs. Those people were biblically literate. Those people knew the Bible story. Here I raise my Ebenezer, O fount of every blessing. 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12. Sometimes just reading through that songbook and looking up all those references is significant. Beulah Land. You remember ever singing Beulah Land? The land of corn and wine. Yeah. And um, it's based on a King James translation. Some of these were based on a King James <laughs> translation. But I can remember in a preacher that helped me a lot, and we're sitting in a room just having a singing. He says, I don't know if Beulah Land's ever mentioned in the Bible. Um, where is it mentioned? What was And it's Isaiah 62. And it means married, but but it's, it appears several times in that context. Isaiah sixty-two and verse uh, four is is the way it was. Now that, I'm I'm going through the old King James too there, so it may be translated differently in some of the newer versions. But anyway, but Mount Pisgah. We talk about, we got off on Pisgah a second. But we never did, we never did follow through with that. What happens on Mount Pisgah biblically that that song uh, is based on Sweet Hour of Prayer? That's where Moses went up to see the promised land. Okay, Moses goes up to see the promised land from there in Deuteronomy three twenty seven. Deuteronomy 3.27, it will be mentioned at the end of Deuteronomy again, in the last chapter of Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy chapter 34. But come with me to another place. He he goes to the top of Pisgah. Isn't it interesting? The same place from which Moses views the promised land, Balak takes Balaam with the hope that Balaam will curse Israel. And he says in verse 15, Stand here beside your burnt offering while I meet the Lord over there. Verse 15. Verse 16, The Lord met Balaam, put a word in his mouth, and said, Return to Balak, and thus you shall speak. He came to him, and behold, he was standing beside his burnt offering. And the leaders of Moab were with him. And Balak said to him, What has the Lord spoken? Then he took up his discourse and said, Arise, O Balak, and hear. Give ear to me, O son of Zippor. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said it, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? Behold, I received a command to bless. When he has blessed, then I cannot revoke it. 
He has not observed misfortune in Jacob, nor has he seen trouble in Israel. The Lord his God is with him, and the shout of a king is among him. God brings them out of Egypt. He is for them like the horns of a wild ox. For there is no omen against Jacob, nor is there any divination against Israel. At the proper time it shall be said of Jacob and to Israel, what God has done. Behold, a people rises like a lioness, and a lion lifts it lifts itself. He shall not lie down until it devours the prey and drinks the blood of the slain. Then Balak said to Balaam, Do not curse them at all, nor bless them at all. And Balaam answered and said to Balak, Did I not tell you? Whatever the Lord speaks, that I must do. Now, verses 13 and 17 largely set up the same way verses 1 through 6 were as the first oracle unfolded. Now with the second oracle, same thing, different place, same basic story. And Balak's hope is that Balaam will change his message and that God will change his message if Balaam goes to a different place. But in his answer, in verses 18 through 24, he answers, God is not a man. God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent. What's he saying there? God doesn't change his mind. God is not going to change his mind with every change in location. He's just not going to do that. Now, a similar passage is stated in 1 Samuel chapter 15 and verse 29. 1 Samuel 15 verse 29. This is when Samuel has pronounced judgment on Saul and his house. He stated uh, that the Lord had rejected him from being king. And Saul is begging Samuel to go with him and bless him before the elders of his people. And he grabs Samuel's robe. He tears his robe. 1 Samuel fifteen twenty nine. The glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind. For he is not a man that he should change his mind. So, in these passages... God is revealed as one who does not change his mind. Both in Numbers 13 and Numbers 23 verse 19 and 1 Samuel chapter 15 verse 29. Anybody detect a difficulty with that? Well, look at 1 Samuel 15.11. 1 Samuel 15.11. Saul, excuse me. 1 Samuel 15.11. I regret I have made Saul king. Verse 35. 
Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. That's the same word used in verse 29. The Lord won't change his mind. But the Lord, in effect, changes his mind about Saul. He is sorry, he regrets that he changed his mind, that he he made him king. This is a word also used when God regretted he had made man in Genesis 6.6. It is a word used after Moses intercedes for Israel in Exodus 32 and the Lord changed his mind about what he was going to do to the people. Uses the same Hebrew word. That's Exodus 32 verse 14. So, in these passages, you have some passages say he doesn't change his mind. And some that say he he does. Now, I I, I can't cover all the bases on this tonight. I, I can't cover it, first of all, probably from a time phrase. But second, because I haven't looked back over each of these and analyzed. But there's a very real sense. First of all, there are difficulties in explaining an infinite God to a finite people, aren't there? And when we explain a God who is unlimited to a people who are limited, you're going to have to use some human expressions to try to convey something about the nature of God to help us to grasp who He is. You also see this word used, for example, in Jonah 3. In Jonah 3, where the Lord changed His mind about the destruction. In a certain sense, God doesn't change there, does He? In a certain sense, God is holy And God is a holy God and God is a loving God, but the people changed what side they're on. And when the people turn from their sins and repent, God is gracious and God is merciful and God shows long-suffering. Anissa, you had a comment or question. Um, It just kind of makes me think of, um, he's not going to change his mind about promises that he's made. Mm-hmm. Um, he made promises to these people. He's let, or he's going to give them this promise later. He's not changing his mind about that. Mm-hmm. So. Remember what Hebrews six says about this. Because he, and that's talk, it's talking about the land promise too. He said because he could swear by none greater, he swore by himself. Men swear by one greater. And the one greater is supposed to, if they're unfaithful, punish them for failing to keep the oath. God could not swear by anyone greater. He swore by himself uh, that he would give Abraham the land. In a sense, is everything God says an oath? Yes. God took an oath to assure weak and human creatures of the certainty of what he said. God doesn't have to be put under oath to tell the truth. God is a God of truth. But sometimes He does those things in order to strengthen our faith and our trust. And so, 
Without dealing with all the difficulties, I think this shows us that God is a God who can be moved by our repentance. God is a God who can be moved by our intercession as Moses did in Exodus 32. He is a God who doesn't change His mind and yet at the same time He may change what He wants to do with a particular people because they repent and turn from sin. Because someone intercedes for them and begs God to have mercy upon them. But that is just a surface treatment, you understand. Do you have a question or thought about that? Katrina? Kind of like God already knows the timeline and how it's all going to play out and He's not changing His ultimate plan. But sometimes His grace and mercy seems like He's to us. seems like He's changed His mind. But He knew it was already going to play out that way. Yes. You know, there are places in the parables where it pictures God as saying, for example, the parable of the vineyard keepers. After they reject the servants, He sends the Son and says, Surely they will respect My Son. Does that indicate God's actual thought when He sends Christ? God knows. It's what should have happened. Surely they will reverence My Son of all people. But... God knows, as He foretold through all the Old Testament, that Christ would be rejected and killed. And so, sometimes in explaining this infinite God to us, it's difficult to do. It's difficult to do. And God does know the timeline. But often, when you see these kind of statements, I do think what Katrina said is interesting. It's usually in a context that shows us God's mercy in giving God, giving people a prolonged chance, another opportunity. Okay, to me, that statement in verse 19 is one of the key statements, but I don't know if we could just say there's one key statement here. But God is not a man that He should lie. So God is not going to be manipulated by their craftiness. And He's not going to be used for their purposes. Um, And He reiterates in verse 20, I have received a command to bless. When He is blessed, I cannot revoke it. I cannot revoke it. But He states, I have not observed misfortune in Jacob. Now that word is a word that is generally translated iniquity. He has not observed iniquity in Israel. He has not seen trouble. He has not seen he has not observed iniquity in Jacob, nor has he seen trouble in Israel. That word trouble is a word that's used to describe unfaithfulness. And it is often associated with sins against God's sacred things. Let me ask you this. Is verse 21 a statement of mercy? God has not observed iniquity in Jacob and He has not observed, seen unfaithfulness in Israel? The fact, no wonder the translation kind of obscures the meaning of those words because we might look at this and say, 
all 21 chapters of the book of Numbers 22 before it show us their sin. But that is a statement, again, of God's compassion, of God's determination to bless this people. And Balak had described the people of Israel as a people who have come up uh, from the land of Egypt in 22 verse 5. Balaam specifies in 23-22, God brings them out of Egypt. And He is for them like the horns of a wild ox. Horns represent strength. And a wild ox is one of those powerful of all animals. And therefore, in verse 23, there's no omen against Jacob. There's no divination against Israel. And the people are compared to a lion. God is not a man that he should lie. The people are going to be blessed is part of the idea the people are going to be strong. He compares their strength to the horns of a wild ox in verse 22. He compares their strength to a lion which will lie down until it devours the prey and drinks the blood of the slain. Now, I think this description ties back to Jacob's promises to his sons, and particularly to Jacob's promises to Judah. I'm talking about the lion imagery that's used in verse 24. Notice in Genesis 49 verse 9, Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches, he lies down like a lion. And as a lion, who dares to rouse him? So what is said about the strength of Judah in Genesis 49 and verse 9 is now applied to the whole, whole land. They will be incredibly strong. Hard to sum that up with one point. But God is not going to change every time you put Him in a new situation. He's still going to bless these people. These people will be strong and mighty, just as you feared. Balak, again upset, don't curse this people. Don't bless them. And But He's going to take him to another place in verse 27. And hope the answer is different. Any questions on that second oracle? Craig, did you have a question? Just sorry to go back. Um, Mount Pisgah, is that, is that the same as Mount Nebo? Is there some question that it's one and the same? Because you referenced two passages as far as this being the same mountain that Moses <laughs> went up and saw the land. Yeah. Um, in Deuteronomy 3, it says Pisgah. In Deuteronomy 32, it says neither. Well, no, I I think what it may be, and and I think I'm remembering this correctly, Craig, um, that Nebo may be a name of a chain and Pisgah a specific mountain. I think that is the correct answer. That's what I remember. I, I have to say... I didn't review all of that today, but that is uh, that is what I remember about the passage. I, I want you all to, when, when I say something like that, 
be looking to check and see if it's true. If there's a discrepancy between what I said in the Bible, go by the Bible. It's got a better track record than I do. Uh, so, but but I think that is the situation. Sarah? I was going to say uh, Deuteronomy 34.1. Now Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho. And so that kind of sounds like it's whether Pisgah is a peak on a particular summit on the Mount on yeah. Mount Nebo or if it's the chain yeah. and it's a particular peak. Okay. Okay. That, yes, that that's right. That's right. That yes. Yes. Thank you, sir. Okay. Anything else? Uh, don't know how far we'll get into this because I want to check some of the references of about Balaam. But let's look at 23-27. Let's start this process again. Balak said to Balaam, Please come. I will take you to another place. Perhaps it will be agreeable with the Lord that you curse them for me from there. Balak has not given up hope that he's going to get to curse, that Balaam's going to get to curse these people. He's really got a lot of appreciation for Balaam's ability to curse. And it's a, it's a good thing to be respected for. Uh, but in verse 28, Balak took Balaam to the top of Peor, which overlooks the wasteland. And Balaam said to Balak, Build seven altars for me here, and prepare seven bulls and seven rams for me here. Balak did not... Balak did just as Balaam had said and offered up a bull and ram on each altar. Let's go into 24. When Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel, he did not go as at other times to seek omens, but he set his face toward the wilderness. And Balaam lifted up his eyes and saw Israel camping tribe by tribe and the Spirit of God came upon him. Now verses 3 through 9 have this entire oracle. This oracle will end with that re- with another reference to a lion. By the way, you notice in 24.8, there is a reference to the horns of a wild ox. In 24.9, a reference to a lion. So the third oracle is a lot like the second oracle in some aspects. But in verse 9, he couches, 24-9, he couches, he lies down as a lion, as a lion who dares to rouse him. Blessed is everyone who blesses you, and cursed is everyone who curses you. This section started out with a statement to Balaam, whoever you bless is blessed, and whoever you curse is cursed. It ends with Balaam, or near the end of it, Balaam emphasizes in 24 verse 9. It's not whoever I bless is blessed, and whoever I curse is cursed. But whoever blesses Israel is blessed. Blessed is everyone who blesses you, and cursed is everyone who curses you. Reiterating those promises that God gave to Abraham. But what I want to emphasize right now, do you notice the striking contrast in what Balaam does in this case? 
and how God answers him in this case. Balaam knows at this point the Lord is determined to bless Israel. So he doesn't go and meet with the Lord asking the Lord to give him a word. He doesn't do that. When Balak takes him to a new place and they offer the bulls and rams as offerings, he just lifted up his eyes and begins to speak. And it doesn't say, like the text said in 23.5, that the Lord put a word in Balaam's mouth. Or in 23.16, the Lord met Balaam and put a word in his mouth. doesn't say that here. It says the Spirit of God came on them. Sometimes the Spirit, and, and I wrestle with this question. When you read the Spirit in the Old Testament, is that a reference to the Holy Spirit? Or is that just a reference to to God? Because sometimes it's just a, like, whether shall I go from your presence? Whether shall I flee from your spirit? Psalm 139, verse 7. God's presence and God's spirit are interchangeable in that passage. People didn't come to the idea of a trinity in the Old Testament. You don't come to that concept in the Old Testament. That is revealed in the New. But there are some places in the Old Testament that mention the Spirit, inspiring prophets, that sound a lot like New Testament passages almost. Uh, There are four of these in Chronicles. Um, See if I can remember them. You all can check. Uh, and see if these are right. First Chronicles twelve eighteen, Second uh, Chronicles fifteen one or two, Second Chronicles twenty um, fourteen and twenty four twenty. No, I don't know if those are right or not. But there are four references in First and Second Chronicles to the Spirit coming upon people to speak. Yes, 2014 is correct. And 24, uh, 2420 is correct. It may, it may be those, those are correct. Yes, 15.1 is correct. So sometimes you do find that idea. But this is a question I want to get to, okay? Why does Balaam do that? Why does Balaam not go inquiring of God Is he just wanting to speak blessing on Israel? John, you shake your head no. I get the impression he's going to curse them. I think he's intending to, to let that curse fly. And God changes the curse into a blessing. Now, why do I get that impression? Not just from this verse but from the mention of Balaam in other places in Scripture. Okay, Let's go through some places outside of Numbers. And Balaam's going to be mentioned outside of this section in Numbers. We're going to come back to him in Numbers 31. But look at Deuteronomy 23. Deuteronomy 23. 
verses 3 through 5. This is Balaam, Deuteronomy 23, 3 through 5. The Bible tells us, No Ammonite or Moabite shall enter the assembly of the Lord. None of their descendants, even to the tenth generation, shall ever enter the assembly of the Lord. Because they did not meet you with bread and water when you came out of Egypt, but because they hired against you Balaam the son of Beor from Peter of Mesopotamia to curse you. Nevertheless, the Lord your God was not willing to listen to Balaam, but the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loves you. Okay? Now, Balaam is mentioned again in Joshua 13 and verse 22, but let's look at Joshua 24, verses 9 and 10. Joshua 24 and verses 9 and 10. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel, and he sent and summoned Balaam, son of Beor, to curse you. But I was not willing to listen to Balaam. So he had to bless you, and I delivered you from his hand. Okay? Look in Nehemiah 13. Nehemiah 13 in verses 1 and 2. Nehemiah 13 verses 1 and 2. Verse 1 talks about how they read no Ammonite or Moabite was to enter the assembly of the Lord. In verse 2, because they did not meet the sons of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. However, our God turned the curse into a blessing. Now, he will also be mentioned in Micah 6 and verse 5. There it's speaking what God did for Israel. He gave them Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. And in verse 5, He uh, would not let Balaam uh, curse them. Um, Also, um, He is mentioned three times in the New Testament. Um, In 2 Peter 2.15 and 16, He loved the wages of unrighteousness. I'm looking for enough room to write them. 2 Peter, these are are references to Balaam in the New Testament. 2 Peter 2.15 and 16, Jude 11, Revelation 2 and verse 14. Now if you don't agree, you can tell me that I'm reading too much into it. But I take those passages right here they, they sure sound like, to me, Balaam intended to curse the people, but God wouldn't let him. Now, Numbers 25. I, I hate, to, hate to step on John or Ryan's territory here, but um, that's the benefit of being a teacher <laughs> all the time, okay? Um, Balaam's not going to be mentioned in Numbers 25. That he was behind that adultery in Numbers 31, verse 16. What happens in Numbers 22 through 24 is Balaam and Balak are trying to convince God to curse Israel. And he will not do it. And even when Balaam speaks intending to curse, God turns the curse into a blessing. 
I don't think anybody was more surprised at Balaam's words than he was. God wouldn't curse Israel. But in Numbers 25, Balaam tries a new method. He gets Israel to curse God. And they do it instantly. The story of the Bible is not our faithfulness to God, but His faithfulness to us. His loyalty to us. He will not let someone curse us, but all too quickly, we turn around and curse Him. Any thoughts there? In thinking through that, sorry, are we are we seeing the shift right here where he intended to bless and finally decides forget that I'm going to do what Balak says, or do you think from the very beginning? I think Second Peter two talks about how he longed for the reward. As much as he said, if he were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I can't go beyond the Lord of the Lord to do more or less. He sure does want to do, he sure does want it badly. He does want it badly. I think the reason I think he's largely a man with apparently some things he said is confirmed. He's a man though without much principle. And he's willing to sell out for a prize. And he wants to but the Lord won't <laughs> And uh, But I, I base that, Karen, the motivation, largely on 2 Peter 2. 2 Peter 2, verses 15 and 16. Because that's what how it sums up the Balaam story. And, and, you know, John and Ryan have a great task ahead of them because these are a couple of great chapters. And so listen attentively, and I hope it goes well. God bless.